Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1093, with a release and air date of Saturday, February 8th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. You have found North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1093 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL HF Band Planning Committee seeks comments on recommended band plan changes. The FCC appoints its first female chief technology officer. Meanwhile, the FCC commissioner is calling for a replacement to the International Telecommunications Union. The Dayton Hamvention 2020 web portal opens for event tickets and exhibit space reservations. IARU Region 1 Youngsters on the Air Summer Camp 2020 will be held this year in Croatia. President Trump signs the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act, or Pirate Act, and we will have all the details. QRZ.com ends its Identity Verified program. Amateur radio volunteers in Turkey support an earthquake response. And what extremes would you go to to get your hands on an old radio? Well, some people are going to extremes. This week, we have a report about a group that wants to recover the transmitter from the RMS Titanic. We will have all the details coming up in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about artificial intelligence and why the FCC recently issued notices to three cell carriers. Australia's own Anil Benshop, VK6FLAB, will present a talk entitled How I Host a Weekly Net for New and Returning Amateurs. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, we look back at more of the history of amateur radio. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about climbing your tower and taking a left turn to work on a sidearm. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio overlooking the Hudson River here in snowy and icy Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting the news from historic Armory Square in downtown Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau somewhere under all this snow in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from the Western Catskills in upstate New York, where the weather outside is truly frightening, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. This Week in Amateur Radio, headline news begins now. Leading off this week's news, the AWRL HF Band Planning Committee is seeking comments and suggestions from the amateur radio community on its report to the AWRL board. 
To fill us in on all the details on the story, we go to AWRL headquarters in Newington, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. At the board's January meeting, the committee presented its specific recommendations in graphical form for each HF band and each U.S. license class with the goal of increasing harmony on the HF bands, particularly between CW and digital users. The committee was revived last summer to consider conflicts between FT and JT modes and other modes. The panel's approach has been to designate distinct assignments for CW narrowband data, wideband data, and ACDS. It also took into consideration how mode usage is regulated or planned elsewhere in the world. Copies of the committee's report are available at www.arrl.org forward slash bandplan. On this webpage, you can also post your comments about the committee's recommendations. The deadline for comments is February 19th. In general, the committee is of the opinion that there is justification for additional space to become available for digital modes, as well as for operation of digital stations under automatic control, the committee told the board. The very changes in spectrum usage that have required our committee's resurgence indicate that digital modes of communication are already increasing in popularity, and the trend is expected to continue or even accelerate. To this end, we have tried to ensure that digital allocations are sufficient for at least a modicum of growth. The committee is also anticipating an increase in automatically controlled digital stations. The report further points to significant use of modern data modes in emergency communications and said its recommendations provide significant support for the evolution and continued relevance of amateur radio. Our failure to adopt to these needs could consign amateur radio to the technological scrap heap, the report said. For its work, the committee presumed approval of three AWRL petitions to the FCC, RM-11708 and WT Docket WT-16-239, known as the Symbol Rate Proceeding, RM-11759, the 80 and 75 meter allocations, and RM-11828, the Enhanced Technician Privileges. The committee also assumed that users can agree to sharing arrangements within a given allocation, narrowband versus wideband sharing with the ACDS allocation, for example. In terms of mode classes, the committee agreed on CW, NB data, WB data, NB with ACDS, and WB with ACDS. The committee said it considered these mode classes incompatible and that they should not have overlapping allocations, with the exception of CW, which is authorized within any amateur radio allocation. The committee's approach would maintain the existing low-end 25 kHz CW-only subbands for exclusive use by amateur extra-class licensees. The panel encouraged CW identification and a listen-before-transmitting protocol for ACDS, if feasible. It also decided that a single allocation for ACDS, without regard to bandwidth, would be the best approach. We note that this is putting the responsibility on the digital community to hold an effective dialogue on the issue and to then self-regulate the users of this segment to adhere to the eventual agreement. A need for flexibility in allocations is desirable, the committee said, and considered whether allocations might be time of day or time of week dependent, for example. 
Modern amateurs must expect to adapt to this kind of fluid assignment of spectrum to incompatible uses using time-based sharing rather than only a single segment, the committee said, expressing the hope that as band plans and sharing agreements are reached, that they consider the advantage of non-simultaneous sharing possibilities. Reiterating the position AWRL has taken in recent FCC filings, the committee said it sees encryption and open source as enforcement matters, as being outside the scope of the ban planning committee. The committee would like comments by February 19th. The Federal Communications Commission this week marked what it called an historic first. The FCC has welcomed its first woman to serve as its chief technology officer, coordinating with the agency's Office of Engineering and Technology and advising Chairman Ajit Pai on related issues. Monisha Ghosh, a fellow of the IEEE, has expertise in wireless technologies, where she has overseen research both in academia and industry. Her new responsibilities began back on January 13th. The FCC chairman said he hoped she would serve as an example for young women considering careers in STEM disciplines. Meanwhile, Commissioner Michael O'Reilly has said that the future of global spectrum use might be better served by an international body other than the International Telecommunications Union. He also questioned the value of the World Radio Communication Conference that is held every few years to revise member nations' use of the spectrum. Speaking before a committee of the United States Senate, O'Reilly said a replacement for the ITU might be a body that resembles the G7 organization, also known as the Group of Seven. Its members include the United States, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the UK, the world's largest advanced economies. The ITU is a body contained within the United Nations. O'Reilly said his biggest concern was that under the ITU, the geopolitics of certain nations could get in the way of harmonization spectrum around the world. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Online orders for Dayton Hamvention 2020 tickets, inside exhibit spaces, and flea market spots can now be placed online. Those who ordered online in 2019 should have their user IDs and passwords available when placing orders. Hamvention's all-volunteer staff will work as quickly as possible to respond to your order. If you encounter difficulties, email the appropriate committee. Tickets, inside exhibits, or flea market. Hamvention announced in December it would be increasing the cost of admission and its booth fee. General admission is now $26 in advance, or $31 at the gate for all three days. The cost of flea market spots has risen by $5 per space and includes inside exhibitors that will be paying $30. Hamvention 2020 takes place May 15th through the 17th at the Greene County Fairgrounds and Exhibition Center, 210 Fairground Road in Xenia, Ohio. 
The 10th annual Youngsters on the Air Camp will be held this summer in Karlovac, Croatia, not far from the capital city of Zagreb. International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 Youth Working Group Chair Lisa Leenders, PA2LS, has announced. With more information on the upcoming Yoda Summer Camp, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters. The Croatian Amateur Radio Association will serve as host of the August 8th through 15th event. Participation is aimed at young radio amateurs living in IARU Region 1, which includes Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. Each IARU member society in Region 1 is invited to sponsor teams of up to four camp participants. Team members will be age 15 to 25 and not have attended a previous Yota camp. Overall participation is limited to 80 campers. The inaugural Youth on the Air Camp in the Americas will take place June 21st through 26th at the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting in Westchester Township, Ohio. In this Youngsters on the Air Camp, we will be continuing with our Train the Trainer program, which will be the main theme of the week, Leanders said. Participants will be working on the future of amateur radio and will be involved in workshops where they gain skills to start similar amateur radio youth events when they are back home. With this, we are aiming to create a snowball effect. There will be more and more Yoda events all over the world. This also allows other youngsters and newcomers to enjoy amateur radio. Leander said camp participants also will be able to enjoy getting on the air as well as building electronic kits. For more information on the American Youth on the Air activity, email Camp Director Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, or call area code 812-327-0749. On January 24th, President Donald Trump signed into law the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act, or the Pirate Act. The measure, which amends the Communications Act of 1934, authorizes enhanced penalties for violators. Under the new law, pirate radio broadcasters would be subject to a fine of not more than $2 million, and violators could be fined up to $100,000 for each day during which an offense occurs. The new law stipulates that the FCC shall not decrease or diminish the regular enforcement efforts targeted to pirate radio broadcast stations for other times of the year. The FCC is to submit to the House Committee on Energy and Commerce and the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation, a report summarizing the implementation of this section, and associated enforcement activities for the previous fiscal year. The new law also requires annual sweeps, during which FCC personnel will be assigned to focus specific and sustained attention on the elimination of pirate radio broadcasting within the top five radio markets identified as prevalent for such broadcasts. The Commission also shall conduct monitoring sweeps to ascertain whether the pirate radio broadcasting identified by enforcement sweeps is continuing and whether additional pirate radio broadcasting is occurring. Under the new law, the FCC in pirate broadcasting cases will change its rules so that it proceeds directly to issuance of notice of apparent liability without first issuing a notice of unlicensed operation. 
the FCC will develop and publish a database of all licensed AM and FM broadcasters, accessible directly from the FCC homepage. The FCC is also required to publish a list of all entities that have received a Notice of Unlicensed Operation, Notice of Apparent Liability, or Forfeiture Order, as well as each entity operating without a Commission license or authorization. The law defines pirate radio broadcasting as transmitting within the AM and FM bands without an FCC license, but excluding unlicensed operations in compliance with Part 15. The popular QRZ.com amateur radio website has dropped its verified member program, which the site instituted last year in an effort to combat fraud and password fishers. Termination of the program was due to a number of factors. The site's founder and president, Fred Lloyd, AA7BQ, explained in a post. Lloyd said the change will transition our online swap meet rules to reflect more open policies. The site had offered the option of establishing two-factor authentication for its registered users, which would then secure a user's password on the site. The site introduced two-factor authentication last June and later the verified member program. While a two-factor authentication has worked well, the identified verified program hasn't worked as well as we'd hoped, he said. There has been a net decrease in swap beat traffic, primarily due to members not wishing to take the extra steps to get verified. The swap meet did seem to get safer, but also notably quieter. The forum has lost some of the excitement that was used to be known for. Lloyd said the Identity Verified program was designed to provide extra levels of confidence to the swap meet participants, but in practical terms, its validation methods were not sustainable. Not only was it an administrative burden, Lloyd explained, but the majority of its participants were only complying reluctantly. The bottom line was it's been unpopular. Lloyd said that by dropping the Identity Verified requirement, QRZ expects to see an increase in equipment listings and greater participation. Individuals listing equipment will still need to provide photos of the actual items for sale, and photos must include the seller's call sign. Only HAM members, those having a listed call sign page, may sell in the swap meet. Those perusing the listings will generally be allowed to post comments or questions about any listing. Swap meet users will be responsible for vetting their own deals and parties, Lloyd added. There will be plenty of online advice for those who are new to the online trading. QRZ is not responsible for the success or failure of any transaction between private parties using its public swap meet forum. When it comes to your deal, you must regard QRZ as a non-participant. In other words, if the deal goes bad, it's not QRZ's fault, and in general, we won't be able to help you. Lloyd said the QRZ does not save documents that were provided for user identification. The two-factor authentication will remain an option, but swap meet users will not be required to use it. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The ranks of American heroes has diminished once more as another Navajo code talker from the World War II era has passed. His name was Joe Vandever, Sr., one of the Navajo code talkers who served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II. 
He was among those whose tribal language gave rise to an unbreakable code used during the war. After enlisting in the Marines in 1943, he served in the occupation of Japan, the occupation of China, Guam, Okinawa, and numerous other locations. The National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. notes that the Code Talkers' contributions in several important wartime campaigns are credited with saving thousands of lives of Americans and United States allies. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez issued the following statement after the announcement of his death. The Navajo people have lost another great warrior who sacrificed more than we'll ever know to defend our country. On behalf of the Navajo Nation, we offer our prayers and heartfelt condolences to his children and many other loved ones. Joe Vandever, who died Friday, January 31st in New Mexico, was 96. There are now only a handful of Navajo code talkers remaining. As all radio amateurs know, causing deliberate interference is illegal. And in France, it recently created life-threatening conditions at sea. In France, some fishermen's illegal use of 4351 and 4354 kHz has interfered with coastal stations' attempts to transmit maritime safety information on those frequencies to warn of navigational hazards. The frequencies are reserved for the coastal station's use. France's National Frequency Management Agency, the ANFR, used HF direction-finding equipment at its International Control Center, along with other ITC and ANFR monitoring stations, to locate the illegal transmissions, after which a message was sent to the fishermen requesting the QSY to 4416 or 4149 kHz, which are the channels authorized for ship-to-ship voice communications. According to the ANFR, this type of interference from fishermen is commonplace and is punishable by up to six months in prison and a fine of 30,000 euros. The ANFR has recently begun testing a navigational data transmission method known as NAVDAT, which will coordinate transmissions on maritime HF frequencies as well as 500 through 518 kHz. Meanwhile, in Spain, hams are finding more and more interference, and they are finding that a lot of the interference is originating in everyday items. The Spanish Amateur Radio Association, the URE, is collaborating with the Electromagnetic Compatibility Committee of IARU Region 1 to find a solution to the ongoing and increasing interference problem that everyday devices are posing to amateur radio operators. The two entities have formed a working group to look at radio noise generated by some electric vehicle charging systems and wireless power transmission. The group members have particular expertise in issues relevant to RFI, including Carl's EA3WS, Salvador EA5Y, and Fernando EA5GVZ. The URE has established a section on its website where it will share relevant information about this widespread RFI problem and to share research into curtailing the problem. When a powerful magnitude 6.8 earthquake struck the province of Elazeg in Turkey on January 24th, Radio amateurs affiliated with the National International Amateur Radio Union Member Society 
T-R-A-C, assisted in the response. Aziz Sasa, T-A-1-E, reported, quote, The affected area was very small and the intensity was limited. Our involvement was also limited, unquote. He said two TRAC branches in the affected area stepped in, assisting by providing tactical communications in the affected area and by supporting the Ministry of Health by installing and getting their mountaintop repeater operational. The Internet remained operational in the area, and Aziz says no operations were taking place on HF. The International Amateur Radio Union has completed the makeover of its main website and three regional websites, all with the same basic design. The three regional sites can be accessed directly from the IARU homepage. All of the updated pages are organized to broadly mirror the structure of the International Telecommunication Union and its related regional telecommunication organizations. The IARU regions are Region 1, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and Northern Asia, IARU Region 2, the Americas, and IARU Region 3, Asia-Pacific. The Region 2 webpage is available in English or Spanish. Each page offers a look at recent IARU news and events. Are you looking for a challenging new job? Well, it appears that scores of new jobs are opening up in the tech sector as Amazon tries for progress with its new satellite proposal. While Amazon awaits the FCC's approval of its proposed satellite-based Internet service, Amazon has already launched more than 170 job postings on its website for the venture known as Project Kuiper. Late last month, Amazon pressed for the FCC's approval so that Amazon could join the field of companies, such as the ongoing SpaceX system called Starlink, and another competing system to be launched by OneWeb. Like the other systems, Amazon plans to offer broadband service from low-Earth orbit satellites, which could bring Internet capabilities to underserved parts of the world. The Washington State-based Amazon has already began its quest to find senior electrical engineers, senior communication system engineers, embedded software engineers, and others for the massive project, which is envisioned as a constellation of more than 3,000 satellites. Industry rival, including SpaceX, are hoping to convince the FCC to hold off on giving an okay to the project, arguing that the presence of Project Kuiper sharing the same spectrum would degrade their own services and raise the possibility of satellite interference. The Amateur Radio Newsline Amateur Radio Club will sponsor an informal activation of WA6ITF. The call sign long held by Newsline co-founder Bill Pasternak became a silent key five years ago. Pasternak would have turned 72 on February 7th, with Bill Orenstein, KH6IAF, Pasternak created the original amateur radio newsline as the Westlink Radio Network, recruiting volunteer broadcasters to contribute ham radio news stories for a webcast or a podcast that Pasternak and others hosted, edited, and produced. Amateur radio newsline became a staple on many repeaters across the U.S. and around the world. Beginning on Friday, February 7th, and well into the weekend, the club will be on the air as WA6ITF, now the club's call sign on HF, DMR, D-Star, Fusion, and Echo Link. All of us here at This Week in Amateur Radio wish our colleagues at Newsline all the best. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts.
And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Whoosh! Coming at you over to radio and the internet. Big day today in several ways. It's Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. Punxsutawney Phil. I guess PETA, the people against ethical... No, I guess they're for ethical treatment of animals. People for ethical treatment, of not against. People for the ethical treatment of animals say they should get rid of the real live groundhog. It's cruel and unusual to pull him out of his... Wait and see what... I don't know. It's cruel and unusual. And they should get an AI groundhog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. AI is overused. It really is overused. It was also Super Bowl day. I know. I know. Everybody around here is dressed in gold and red, the 49ers colors. I bet everybody in your neck of the woods is dressed in red and white, the Kansas City Chiefs colors. It's going to be an exciting game this afternoon. It is also a palindromic date worldwide, 020-22020. Backwards and forwards, same date. Who cares? Everybody on Twitter, apparently. <laughs> it's a big thing. I'm sure it's a trending topic. Somebody said, and I think this is true, Twitter is the comment page for life, for the internet. It's the comment page that everybody else took off for the internet. Zero to zero, twenty two zero to zero. Happy Super Bowl, Groundhog Day, and uh, Palindrome Day. Everybody uses this term AI. I don't, I, I'm not mocking my, my, uh, Fearless Leaders, the company that I work for. It's a fabulous company, iHeartMedia. But uh, they replaced some uh, some local hosts in various markets over the last few weeks. And in the press release, they said they were going to replace them with AI. <laughs> is, is the Terminator coming in to do the show? I'm not sure. They could replace me with AI. But it's not AI. Let me be very clear. It's kind of hard to know what AI is now that it's the flavor of the month. You know, it's AI is like um, mustard. You spread on everything. Everything's better with AI. But it isn't AI, really. AI, artificial intelligence. I'm not, you don't want to have to look up the actual definition. A computer program is not AI. Uh, it isn't. AI is, well, I mean, I guess in the most colloquial terms, it's um, it's having a machine think like a human, but that's that's colloquial because machines can't think like humans. AI textbooks define the field as the study of intelligent agents. I'm reading from Wikipedia now. Can you tell? Any device, hmm, this is an interesting definition, that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximize its chance of successfully achieving its goals. Oh, I like that. Self-driving car. That would be artificial intelligence, right? Because the car looks around, it's going from point A to point B, and it's trying not to hit anything on the way. Hmm. Colloquially, says Wikipedia, the term is often used to describe machines or computers that mimic cognitive functions humans associate with the human mind, like learning and problem solving. But many computer programs can do that. In fact, from the day, earliest days of computers, they kind of simulated human cognition. Two plus two equals mm, four. That looks like cognition, doesn't it? It's not. It's just a box of rocks, you know, moving bits around. There are various tests for artificial intelligence, all of which are kind of mocked by the experts in the field. We kind of, we know AI when we see it. Understanding human speech, yeah, that's that's AI, right? You're uh, Amazon Echo. Playing chess and winning, beating the world champion at chess or Go, uh, the famous Japanese game of Go. If you could do that, well, that's, you know, but honestly, I don't know if that's AI or not. 
It could be, it could not be. There have been chess playing programs for years. It's just a program, if this, then that. That's a program, if this, then that. And really a self-driving car, if this, then that, is kind of, that's a program in a way, isn't it? If this, then that. What makes a chess or Go computer artificial intelligence, well, I'll give you an example. Alpha Zero, which is the computer that Google programmed to be the best in the world at Go, which is a very, chess is easy compared to Go. We beat the world champion chess years ago. Go, just, it's hard. In fact, it's kind of sad. The guy who uh, who they beat, Lee Sedol, who was one of the, if not the greatest Go player around, certainly one of the top four, three or four, retired. <laughs> he said, that's it. I got beat by a machine. I can't play this game anymore. That, I think, is a good example of artificial intelligence. I don't know if we know the definition, but let me submit this as a good definition. Alpha Zero was taught to play Go not in the usual way. In the old day of uh, chess programs, including Deep Blue, the the program that beat Gary Kasparov, the then world champion of chess, to become the best chess playing computer and person ever ever in the world. It was just shown a lot of positions said, when this happens, do that. It was given a way to evaluate positions in chess. Alpha Zero is a little different. Alpha Zero was taught the rules of Go, which are very, very simple. And then they said, go play, (laughs) go play. And learn on your own. Now, I think that's artificial intelligence. It played millions of games, millions of games in just a few hours. In fact, in four hours, AlphaZero was playing chess better than the chess-playing computers out there. After nine hours, it played the best current best chess-playing computer, Stockfish, 100 games, and won 28 to nothing. 72 of them were tied. Alpha Zero taught itself. Now that, to me, that's artificial intelligence. What? Right? That's pretty amazing. It's a neural network, which is meant is a is a network of nodes to sort of to simulate how the brain works. That 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 learn, that remember, and and get better and better over time. That's a, I think that's pretty good. And in a way, I guess that's what a self driving car does. It gets better, right? Or does a programmer have to then change the if this then that? See, that's not artificial intelligence to me. Artificial int- and of course, why are we scared of artificial intelligence? Since so many are, in fact, uh, the head of Google, Sundar Pichai, just said, actually, he's the head of Alphabet now, isn't he? Which is, by the way, the leading company in this thing, at least in the West. He said, "Well, yeah, we ought to regulate this. This could be dangerous. Could because every movie you've ever seen with a computer, it gets sentient, right? And then that's when your troubles begin. And decides, I don't need people. I'm smart. Now, I have an opinion on that because I don't think." I think that that is a leap that we have yet to prove happens. Computers can learn. Alpha Zero learned Go. Can be humans. That's fine. But in order to take over the world, they need to develop something we call consciousness. And that's a big leap. Consciousness, awareness that they exist. Awareness they exist in the world. Desires, hopes, ambitions, dreams, all of that. That's a big leap from learning how to play a game or drive a car or spin the discs. That's a whole different matter. And we have yet to show that leap being made. We don't even know how it's made. How do you go from being a big calculator to saying, I think, therefore I am? We don't know. That leap into consciousness, that's the thing that makes us human. And it's the thing no computer's ever done. Now, when it does that, then I'm going to worry. I see no evidence that that's going to happen. And until then, these are very valuable things. They can drive better than we can because they pay attention. They're not too bright. That's the problem, right? We're too smart. We get bored driving a car. We go, what's, uh, I wonder what's, uh, what's going on on Twitter. Let me take an Instagram of my meal while I'm driving. That's what gets us in trouble. Or we get emotional, right? Oh, I got to go faster than that guy. I got to pass that guy. He's not getting ahead of me. 
that's where we get in trouble. A computer card goes, I'm going to go over there today. Oh, there's somebody in front of me. I'll wait. That's what you want in a car. Actually, they're doing this in Phoenix with Waymo, right? They, they're test driving. And it's driving people crazy because humans want to go, come on, get going, get going. And the car's going, I think I'll turn left here. And the humans behind it are going nuts. Come on, come on. I don't like these self-driving cars. They're not aggressive enough. Uh, let's see. What else is uh, in the news? Very happy to see that the FCC... <laughs> I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. One year, almost to the day that uh, that the EFF, New York Times, and others, Vice, Motherboard, showed that your cell phone company, many cell phone companies were selling personal information about how you used your phone, where you were, and so forth. Uh, remember that article? Remember that way back when? The FCC just just this week said, oh, yeah, maybe we, maybe we got to, I don't know, should we do something about that? They didn't actually do anything about it, but they <laughs> they said they're going to look into it. Uh, the <laughs> one year later, the FCC says, "Hmm, uh, one or more carriers they wouldn't say which broke the law by selling user location data to data brokers who sent sold it on to people like bounty hunters." That was the New York Times story in a letter to uh, a member of the House of Representatives this week. Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, said, I wish to inform you, if you get a letter from the FCC, at least in my business, that starts, I wish to inform you, <laughs> I wish to inform you that the FCC's Enforcement Bureau has completed its extensive, year-long, investigation and has concluded that one or more wireless carriers apparently, apparently, violated federal law. And we're going to look into it, darn it. <laughs> in the... Yeah. Uh, in the coming days, Pi wrote, I intend to circulate to my fellow commissioners, the FCC is, you know, a bunch of commissioners, for their consideration one or more notices of apparent liability for forfeiture in connection with the apparent, that's 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 three apparents now, violations. It's apparent. One FCC commissioner, uh, the, one of the Democrats, Jessica Rosenworcel, said for more than a year, the FCC was silent after news reports alerted us that just for a few hundred dollars, shady middlemen could sell your location within a few hundred meters based on your wireless phone data. But the problem is the FCC, even if they do decide to levy fines, has given these companies a year to continue to sell, make some money so they can pay the fines. Usually the fines much less than they make. Ron Wyden, senator, wrote, when I alerted the FCC in 2018, the wireless carriers were selling their customers' location data to a shady prison phone company which was allowing prison guards to track American cell phones. I knew immediately the practice was a security and privacy nightmare. Dogged reporting by Motherboard and the New York Times revealed this was just the tip of the iceberg. I'm eager to see whether the FCC will truly hold wireless companies accountable or let them off with a slap on the wrist. It's an apparent slap on the wrist. We shall see. The CTIA, which represents this, the trade association representing your fine cell phone company, said wireless companies are committed to protecting the privacy of consumers and share location data only with consumer consent. Upon hearing allegations of the misuse of data, carriers quickly investigated, suspended access to the data, and subsequently terminated those programs. I'm sure Ajit Pai will agree, and that'll be that. It's all better now. Don't worry. Don't worry. 
Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. The Radio Act of 1912 was hopelessly obsolete by the early 1920s. Conceived in an era of long and medium wave spark telegraphy, the Act was totally inadequate when it came to broadcasting and the short waves. The Department of Commerce gamely tried to stretch the Act to meet the new requirements. The 1922 and 1924 regulations that banned broadcasting by amateurs set up the broadcast band and carved out the 160, 80, 40, 20, and 5 meter bands were really nothing more than gentlemen's agreements, valid as long as they weren't challenged. For a time they worked. Amateurs enthusiastically settled in on their new bands and began working the world while the number of broadcasters in the new 550 to 1500 kilocycle region jumped from 30 to almost 600 in just three years. Technical advances had not kept up with this growth, however, and there were problems. Crystal control of transmitters was still a couple of years away, and the unstable broadcasting stations drifted from their assigned frequencies, sometimes to the point of interfering with adjacent channels. Even stations off frequency by 400 to 600 cycles could cause ear-splitting heterodynes. Most receivers of the 1920s were either regenerative or TRF, tuned radio frequency, which were good on sensitivity and poor on selectivity. As a result, the 1920s broadcast band was saturated with only 600 stations. Compare that to today's medium wave where tight frequency control of 20 cycles coupled with directional antennas and selective superheterodyne receivers, allows over 4,000 stations to occupy the AM broadcast band without undue interference. The Department of Commerce therefore issued regulations mandating such solutions as time-sharing, where two or more stations occupied the same frequency at different times of the day, and daytime-only operations. Stations were constantly moved to another frequency or told to decrease power in order to minimize interference. The department also went after stations whose transmitters drifted onto adjacent channels. An interesting example of this was the Los Angeles station of sister Amy Semple McPherson, an evangelist who was the leader of the International Church of the Four Square Gospel. Her station was notorious for drifting up and down the broadcast band. When the federal radio inspectors tried to keep her on frequency, she imperiously wrote to Secretary Hoover, demanding that his minions of Satan stay away from her transmitter. The Almighty would choose her wavelength, she wrote. 
not the Department of Commerce. Many of the stations that have been told to move, told to reduce power, or share their frequency did what any patriotic American would do – hire a lawyer. Once the legal bloodhounds began digging, certain things came to light. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution allows the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. Furthermore, it is an accepted fact that a federal agency cannot issue any regulations unless it was given the power to do so by Congress. Thus, the lawyers for the disgruntled stations challenged the Secretary's regulations on two fronts. First, that the Radio Act of 1912 gave the Department no authority to regulate broadcasting stations, and second, that since many stations could not be heard across state lines, there was no interstate commerce and therefore no federal jurisdiction. This is the argument used by Radio Free Berkeley and other low-power pirate stations. The day of reckoning arrived in 1926 when an Illinois district court held that there was no federal law to permit the Secretary of Commerce to assign broadcasting licenses or frequencies. The Attorney General admitted that the federal government had no control over radio except what was specifically authorized in the 1912 Act. Pandemonium broke out. Stations, liberated from all federal control, upped their power, jumped frequency, and or began full-time operations on daytime or share-time frequencies. Smaller stations were jammed off the air. Unlicensed transmitters appeared out of nowhere, dropped down on any convenient or inconvenient frequency, and began broadcasting. Anarchy was king. Amateurs, of course, could have legally joined in this RF orgy. There was nothing preventing them from getting back to broadcasting, moving to new frequencies, exceeding the one kilowatt limit, or anything else they desired. To their credit, they did nothing of the sort. One reason was the immense respect they felt for Secretary Hoover, a man who over and over publicly supported amateur radio in any way possible. They would abide by their gentleman's agreement with him. The other reason was common sense. They knew that Congress would soon rectify the problem by passing appropriate legislation. The broadcasters were big boys with a lot of money, powerful corporate backers, and six million listeners. They could afford to violate the spirit of the law and get away with it. Amateurs did not have this luxury. They realized that any violations of the 1922 and 1924 agreements, even if they were legally unenforceable, would cost them dearly in political support. So while the 550 to 1500 kilocycle segment was a free-for-all, the amateur bands were disciplined and orderly as hams mastered the art of crystal control and improved their operating skills. Incidentally, one area where these skills were honed was expeditions. From the Arctic to the Antarctic, from Macmillan to Byrd, amateurs provided the necessary communications of almost every major explorer. Also, in the area of emergencies, amateurs provided communications during snow and ice storms, hurricanes, earthquakes, and floods. The federal government quickly moved to end the chaotic mess on the broadcast band. The Radio Act of 1927 was approved on February 23rd. This law defined amateur radio for the first time in a federal statute and created the Federal Radio Commission, which was given the power to classify and regulate all aspects of all radio stations for the public interest, convenience, or necessity. Criminal penalties were written into the 1927 Act for violations of the Act or any regulation thereunder. The Commission immediately went to work. Minions of Satan got Sister Amy's station back on frequency and shut down the transmitter of KFKB, the station of Dr. John Brinkley, 
graduate of the Eclectic Medical School and proponent of prostate operations and, get this, goat gland transplants to cure all medical ills. Patients by the thousands listen to KFKB's broadcasts and flock to Kansas to have the operations picking out their goat from the pens next to the hospital as they went in. Do you think I could make this up? Unfortunately, after the commission shut him down, Dr. Brinkley went to Mexico by the Texas border, set up a 150,000-watt station, and continued his fraudulent operations. In regards to amateur radio, the commission, in effect, kept the status quo for the 15,000 hams. All agreements and regulations enacted by the Department of Commerce were maintained and incorporated into current regulations. The only change that hams noticed was the addition of a prefix on their calls. Thus, 1AW became W1AW, 1JS became W1JS, etc. However, the existence of a sympathetic commission and friendly regulations wasn't enough. Radio was truly international and, as a result, an international radio-telegraph conference was scheduled in Washington, D.C. for October 4, 1927. Word was filtering out of Europe and the Far East that many governments were anti-amateur radio. How would our hobby fare at this conference? Join us the next time as the Ancient Amateur Archives has the answers. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archives. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. This is the propagation forecast for Friday, February 7th. A stream of solar particles arrived today, but it's a weak stream and it's not expected to cause much trouble on the HF bands. Another stream, however, is due to arrive next week, but it's also pretty weak. So again, probably not very troublesome. Now that we're without sunspots again, the solar flux index has dipped and the upper HF bands will be pretty poor for the next several days. With the quiet noise conditions, however, 160 and 80 meters should remain your best choices. On VHF and UHF, everything is pretty quiet, although folks in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina may see some limited band openings in the days to come. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Bruce, KK5DO, lost his voice to allergies this week and will hopefully return next week. Last week, we reported of the resignation of AMSAT President Joe Spire, K6WAO. This week, the AMSAT Board of Directors met through a telephone conference call and elected Clayton Coleman, W5PFG, as the new president of AMSAT. Clayton had previously served on the AMSAT Board of Directors from 2017 to 2019 and was its secretary during that time. He volunteered in other capacities for AMSAT, including chairing the 2016 AMSAT Space Symposium held aboard the cruise ship Carnival Liberty. He was first introduced to amateur radio in space in the early 90s with 
Sarex, and Mir. It was not until a visit from a friend in 2011 that Clayton was bit with the Oscar bug. Clayton will be at the Orlando Hemcation on Saturday, February 8th, where he will hold a meet-and-greet at the AMSAT booth from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. and at 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. He will also have remarks at the AMSAT Forum at 12.30 p.m. Saturday in room CS3 at the Lakeside Pavilion. This is Mahana Page, W5BTS. In DX News, Zulu Charlie 4 RH will be on the air from Cyprus running SSB, CW, and FT8 from now through February 13th. In addition, V31CO is active from Belize on CW, FT8, RTTY, and possibly SSB until February 25th. If you need Nepal, listen for 9N7AM, who will be on the air until February 16th. And 5H4WZ is on the air from Tanzania until February 18th, and 4KW6-TA7AOF will be on the air from Azerbaijan until February 12th. If you're looking for special event stations this weekend, we have N4SCV on the air, February 8th, from the Sons of Confederate Veterans Camp 1424 in Gainesville, Florida, and NI6IW, operating from the USS Midway Museum ship on February 8th to commemorate the Mount Suribachi flag raising. There are several stations on the list also for next weekend. N4DAB will be handing out contacts from the Daytona 500 race, W1M will be operating from Russell, Massachusetts for the Scout Camps on the Air. W0EBB will be active during the 16th annual Freeze Your Keys event. W5BMC in Morgan City, Louisiana will be on the air for the 15th annual Eagle Expo. W0JH will be operating Frozen Lake Portable in Stillwater, Minnesota. And K4US will be celebrating George Washington's birthday from Alexandria, Virginia. For complete details, see page 9 in your February issue of QST Magazine. The Maine Bicentennial Special Event Committee, formed from members of the Wireless Society of Southern Maine, along with KB1ZUN and AB1YO from Penn Bay ARC, have organized an amateur radio special event that recognizes the original nine counties of the state of Maine. There will also be three other special stations for Jameson Tavern in Freeport, the town of Portland, and Boston in recognition of their contribution to Maine statehood. Operations will take place on HF 6 meters, 2 meters, and 70 centimeters. Modes include CW, SSB, and digital. This allows all Maine amateur radio operators to participate in some form. Certificates will be available for chasers and operators. The main 200 special event stations by county are Cumberland, W1C, Hancock, W1H, Kennebec, W1K, Lincoln, W1L, Oxford, W1O, Penobscot, W1P, Somerset, W1S, Washington, W1W, and York, W1Y. Jameson Tavern has the call sign of K1J, town of Portland K1P, and also the city of Boston operating K1B. We look forward to having you take part in this special event for Amateur Radio in Maine. Foundations of Amateur Radio.
If you've ever had the pleasure, or misfortune, to hear an on-air net, you might have considered, however briefly, how that net came to be, how it's run, and what's involved behind the scenes to make it happen. I host a weekly net called F-Troop. It's been running every week since the 12th of June in 2011. Since then, I've made over 5,000 contacts with stations scattered all over the globe. A typical net has about 10 people, but depending on the weather, what's on TV, or if people had a hard Friday night, that number fluctuates. The biggest was about 40, the smallest just two. At this point, I could tell you that the infrastructure to make this happen, the preparation, management processes, network and marketing, are what take up the bulk of my week. I mean, there might be a weekly stand-up between stakeholders on a Wednesday, a plan for the content, what to discuss. You know, the typical. If I told you that, I'd be lying. The reality is that F-Troop is an organic animal. I generally get to my radio a couple of minutes before we start, midnight UTC, switch on, kaplunk the local repeater, and wait for the clock to tick over. I then launch into my opening spiel, something along the lines of, Hi folks, it's me, it's F-Troop, who's awake? After taking a few calls and logging them, I circulate through, call for more people, rinse and repeat. There are two invisible things happening, one required, the other I do because I'm a computer geek. The required activity is logging. I chose to log in an online spreadsheet. It's helpful because it makes for a single place where all contacts are stored, and it allows for others to host the net if I happen to fall off the air, either by being somewhere else, like a holiday, every decade or so, or because my radio isn't being cooperative. The other thing that logging gives you is a memory. I generally recall a person's name from their call sign, but if you listen closely, you'll notice that every now and again I'll extend my babble so I can search for a call sign and appear not to be suffering from memory loss. The other thing that happens is that I update the website. I'll be merrily adding articles from emails or discussion as it's happening. If someone mentions a product or a website, a call sign or a project, I'll often be searching for it in real time and adding it as opposed to the F-Troop website. That way, people who want to refer back at a later time, that includes me, can search and find the thing that someone showed us. As simple or as complex as that sounds, depending on your level of experience, it's really not rocket science. You can do this with pen and paper. I know, I've done it. Standing in a car park with a notepad, whilst dodging rain showers and preparing for a field day. It's fun to test your skill and to get out of your comfort zone every now and again. I should interrupt this story for a word from our sponsors. Don't have a kitten, we're not talking about advertising, we're talking about repeater and network operators who graciously give of their time and resources to link the main F-Troop repeater to others around the world. The network of All-Star, Echolink, IRLP and IRN radios that carry F-Troop is astonishing to me. We have regular participants all over Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom. There have been contacts with stations in Asia and Europe. For that to happen, I don't do a single thing. Well, technically I let repeater operators know I exist, and when it breaks, but that's pretty much the sum total of my efforts. Why am I telling you this? Last week it broke. My radio was acting up and someone commented on that. I handed over the reins and let them at it. They were very unsure. I let them know that F-Troop is for beginners. It's expected that people are going to make a mistake. I know I do, plenty of times. It occurred to me afterwards that hosting a net can be scary. If you have no idea what's involved, how to make it happen, what to do, then hosting must be immensely daunting. 
I hope that sharing how I do this will give you the confidence to host your own net in your own community. Perhaps you can tell me more about it. Or come and visit F Troop, Saturday morning at midnight UTC. If you want, I'll even help you host it. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. The only thing that worries me more than climbing to 400 feet on a July night with thunderstorms visible in the distance is climbing to 200 feet and then making a turn to the right and moving away from the tower six feet on a sidearm. Just the thought of making a sharp turn on a highway with no exits just doesn't seem natural but for a climber, it's a necessary part of the job. For the safety-oriented climber, we work to minimize the risk of death. Let's be honest here. If something goes very wrong on a sidearm, one of three things will happen. Death, poopy diapers, or serious injury. Let's examine some potential truths about sidearms. For openers, if the sidearm was about to fall off the tower, it would be visibly obvious just by looking at its mounting hardware most of the time. Also, if that structure survived the past year's worth of ice storms, 90 mile an hour winds, or worse without breaking, chances are it'll support my fat butt for a short amount of time just fine too. Since tower climbers usually own lots of straps, belts, and ropes, we have the ability to choose how we want to protect ourselves when working on sidearms. Basically, we can choose to secure ourselves to the tower or if we want to secure ourselves to the sidearm at all. Depending upon the width of the tower, the design of the sidearm will vary. On a 1-2 to two foot sidearm, many times I stay below it and stay strapped to the tower. I use two or three devices and lean out away from the tower so I'm just below the antenna I'm working on. If the antenna is too heavy to handle this way, I can secure it from above or work on it from above. If the sidearm is a big 6 foot mother, I prefer to climb out onto it to get my work done. What I do is use a very light but very strong rescue strap. It's about 10 feet long and strong enough to pull a car out of a ditch, yet light enough to carry in a big pocket. I attach it with two beaners about 5 feet above the sidearm on that side of the tower. The other end of the strap goes to my belt. I slide out onto the sidearm and often never strap onto it. Depending upon the width of the sidearm and the weight of the antenna I'm working on, I may never strap onto the sidearm at all. This way, if the sidearm breaks off the tower, I'll drop to the end of the strap and stop while the sidearm can fall away. If I was strapped to the sidearm too, my strap would have to catch all of that weight, which sounds like a bad idea to me. Again, each installation is different. One needs to know the age of the structure and look how well maintained it is and decide how to deal with safety based on a first-hand inspection of the sidearm. There is not much in nature that would put an equivalent weight load at the end of a sidearm equal to my 160 pound body weight. So a climber needs to be very aware of the risks and safety specs of his gear, not to mention the condition of the tower. The professional climber recognizes the danger and works to minimize the risk without losing lots of time and with minimal added weight. 
If you want to imagine a job I don't ever want is the guy that slides down the guy wires with the bucket of grease smearing a coating from end to end. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. Registration is open for the third annual HamSci Workshop for amateur radio operators and professional scientists, being held on Friday and Saturday, March 20th and 21st, at the University of Scranton. The theme of this year's workshop is the Auroral Connection, and will include addresses by guest speakers, poster presentations, and demonstrations of relevant instrumentation and software. All radio amateurs, scientists, and anyone interested in ionospheric and space physics are welcome to attend. The workshop will serve as a team meeting for the HAMSI Personal Space Weather Station Project, a National Science Foundation-funded project awarded to University of Scranton Physics and Electrical Engineering Professor Nathaniel Frizzell, W2NAF. The project seeks to harness the power of a network of radio amateurs to better understand and measure the effects of weather in the upper levels of Earth's atmosphere. Through the grant, Frizzell, a space physicist, will lead a collaborative team that will develop modular, multi-instrument, ground-based space science observation equipment and data collection and analysis software. He will also recruit multiple universities and ham radio users to operate the network of personal space weather stations developed. In addition to Scranton, the Personal Space Weather Station project includes participation from TAPR, Tapper, the Case Western Reserve University Amateur Radio Club, W8EDU, the University of Alabama, the New Jersey Institute of Technology Center for Solar Terrestrial Research, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Haystack Observatory, Dartmouth College, and the ham radio community at large. Noted contester and DXer Tim Duffy, K3LR, will deliver the keynote address. The chief operating officer and general manager at DX Engineering, Duffy chairs Contest University, the Dayton Contest Dinner, and the Top Band Dinner, as well as coordinates the Contest Super Suite. He is the founder and moderator of the popular RFI Reflector. Duffy serves on the board of directors of the Worldwide Radio Operators Foundation and is chairman and president emeritus of the Radio Club of America. He was elected to the CQ Contest Hall of Fame in 2006 and was honored with the prestigious Barry Goldwater Amateur Radio Service Award by the Radio Club of America in 2010. Other speakers at the workshop include Elizabeth McDonald, the NASA researcher that founded and leads the Aurorasaurus Project. She will discuss fundamentals of auroral physics, its optical signatures, and the Aurorasaurus Citizen Science Project. James LaBelle, a professor of physics and astronomy at Dartmouth University and a rural radio physicist, will discuss radio signatures of the aurora, remote sensing using active and passive techniques, and ways the amateur radio and the HAMSI community could contribute. Also, David Halliday, K2DH, a retired microwave engineer, 
who is also a well-known amateur radio operator for his work in auroral mode propagation, will discuss his practical experiences of using the aurora for radio communication purposes. Additional information on the conference is available on the HAMSI Workshop 2020 website. During a teleconference meeting this week, the AMSAT Board of Directors elected Clayton Coleman, W5PFG, of Granbury, Texas, as AMSAT president. Coleman had served as a member of the Board of Directors and AMSAT secretary from 2017 to 2019, and he has volunteered in several other capacities for AMSAT, including as chair of the 2016 AMSAT Space Symposium. He succeeds Joe Spire, K6WAO, who resigned recently, citing personal reasons after being in office since October 2017. Coleman was introduced to amateur radio in space through the Sarex program, the forerunner to the ARIS program, and the Russian Mir space station. His interest in setting up an AX.25 BBS and nodes in the early 1990s led him to try making contacts via the Mir personal message system and Digipeter. In 2011, Coleman became interested in Oscar and began chasing operating awards. Coleman's focus as president will be working with members to improve organizational processes and aligning them with strategic goals. Professionally, Coleman works in the industrial process control sector, both as a consultant and business development manager. AMSAT members will have an opportunity to meet Coleman at Orlando Hamcation on Saturday, February 8th. He will also speak at the AMSAT Forum at 12.30 p.m. on Saturday in room CS3 at the Lakeside Pavilion. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Connecting to the random access file. I had a Sunday brunch with a remarkable motley crew of ham radio operators. Among the quorum in session were W2XBS, our technical guru here at This Week in Amateur Radio, and Bill Continelli, W2XOY, our maven emeritus of the amateur radio archives. We had convened at a nearby Denny's restaurant in DeFriestville, a little half-mile strip of nowhere, planted right in the middle of anywhere, jammed in smack dab somewhere in wherever upstate New York. Bill was in his best evangelistic form, extolling the virtues of his brand spanking new Radio Shack HTX 420, dual-band handheld transceiver, which he sternly advised was on closeout for a mere $129 U.S., Bill quietly murmured in conspiratorial tones that the very last unit in the area could be located at the Hoosick Street Radio Shack in Troy. The 420 was a cute little blister, reminiscent of the Kenwood THD7A in terms of appearance and keyboard layout. The HTX 420 transmits from 144 to 148 megacycles and from 438 to 450 out of the box and offers extended receive from 136 to 174 and from 420 to 512, plus the aircraft band, from 108 to 137. 
The little HTX might not have been of further interest, except that Bill further intoned that this radio could easily be modified to transceive far beyond its respective band edge limits. How easy? This is how easy. On page 42 of the owner's manual, under the heading, Changing the Transmit Frequency Range, the following statement. To extend the range, turn off the transceiver. Then, while holding the scan button plus the 9 button, press power. With this so-called mod, the 2-meter transmit now expands from 142 to 149.88. This is typical Civil Air Patrol and Mars capability, and so no big deal. It was the extended transmit from 420 to 470 that caught my attention, so let's flag that thought for just a moment. This is quite a sea change from previous Radio Shack policies regarding their amateur radio walkie-talkies, especially since when they first debuted their HTX-202. That radio was loudly hailed as a 2-meter-only rig, no extended transmit, no expanded receive. Apparently, this ham-only approach has been slowly tailspinning away from stated doctrine. My ex-wife is a ham, too, and owns a Radio Shack HTX-245. This is also a dual-bander. This handy-talkie also has a simple two-button mod to go wide-band, but the instructions are printed on a dingy yellow slip of paper and stuffed in the box almost as an afterthought. This keyboard approach is also light-years away from the days when open-heart surgery had to be performed on some HTs. I still have my Kenwood TH-77A, which had to be physically disemboweled. Some highly significant megachip had to be unsoldered and physically lifted off the primary board just to further unsolder two microscopic surface mount components hidden beneath. Professionals were needed and secured for the project. This was far beyond my own capabilities, but the job got done. Similar devices, such as the standard C528A, did not require the scary circuit board hospitalization, but did offer keyboard mods. However, the prospective owner was required to enter several pages of many press function and many push number in an effort to unfetter and to unshackle. In other words, a major league headache. My uh, now archaic Alenco F1 handheld, which in untimely manner became the F1-2, when my son, about four years old at the time of the incident, smart-bombed a well-targeted shoe onto the surface of the innocent radio and promptly amputated the bright white little number two keypad button, which quickly bounced away and got lost forever somewhere in the flibbity-jibbity. My other assorted Linkos, well, they, they did make life a bit easier by providing the obvious snip here, bright yellow wire, or the obvious clip here, a bright white resistor, but even so, the protective covers to the transceivers needed to be undone and their soft and secret internals violated. But not so with the HTX 420. At the conclusion of our Sunday brunch with the Motley crew, I decided to take a leisurely tour up street to Troy and sauntered into the Emporium and put forth my request and the requisite cash flow. Five minutes later, I had the booty in tow. I was tempted to change tracks and go with a pair of Motorola T5950 family radio service radios sitting on the shelf, but I held firm, which brings us back to my flag thought. This little HTX, by its own design parameters, embraces both the family radio service and also the general mobile radio service, and this little HTX, by its own design parameters, transceives very well in both the 462 and 467 megacycle ranges. Armed with this sensitive little brick of technology, I was now privy to an amazing microscopic world just outside my ham shack window and just right down the street. But the signals, 
they are so small, and the signals, they are so much higher in frequency that you can just barely hear them outside your window, much less right down the street. And the radios that are being used, they are so small that they, like the cell phone and the pager, could easily be dropped into a toilet. So on my own city block where I live, lots of little kids have lots of these little 500 milliwatt FRS radios that you can grab for nine bucks at the Walmart. An amazing and endless chaotic stream of beeping noises can be heard in the late after school hours, playing endlessly between dinner time, homework time, and bedtime. Legal issues aside, I decided to attempt first contact with the preteen street population using the amazing HDX420 on high power, and much like the CB of yesteryear, lines like Hey Witcher 20 are still very much part of the working vernacular. I immediately met resistance when I asked them what they were doing on my channel. Perhaps I was a bit forward with this unsubstantiated claim. Who are you? they demanded. I am the king, I asserted. You are not the king, they challenged. How can you say that? I stated in self-defense. Because the king lives in Egypt, they argued. But I am from Egypt, I lied. No, you're not, they theorized with obvious knowledge and truth. How can you tell, I wondered aloud. Because you are here in Albany on my street, they assured me. I am the queen, said another, far more adult, far more feminine, and far closer to my age. You are? I stammered. Yes, I am a nurse too, she purred. But I was not sure if this was an act of seduction or an offer of mental health therapy, so I put the 420 down and continued to listen to the ongoing drone of the beeps, the boops, and the blips, while the queen called for the king several times more, but to no avail. I did learn a few hours later that the queen had a late-night working spouse who might not appreciate his queen getting it on with the king. And later that same evening, just a few minutes east of midnight, The king is here, I announced to the pre-squelched static rush, and to no one in particular. Hey, man, an anonymous young male voice countered. Yes, I responded with guarded concern. Hey, man, where are the girls? He cooed with an edgy, wicked smile. I don't know, I waffled, caught off guard. There was no more chit-chat to follow. My answer clearly was incorrect, and it appeared that the young fellow may have sharked his way on to another channel in search of the girls. Quite a departure from the kitty talk six hours earlier. But better than cable TV, just the same. Now, far be it from me to suggest that you or anyone employ non-FCC type-accepted RF equipment in the service of the 21st century CB, lest some well-meaning but most likely over-intentioned FRS or GMRS user freak out and spew government regulation dogma out through your speaker grill. But I did have some fun. By the way, I did go back and picked up those Motorola 5950s at the same radio shack just a few weeks later, so now when the moment strikes me, I can jockey back and forth between the radios in an effort to keep my cantankerous audience at bay. Should you try this yourself? Only you can answer that question. Disconnecting from the random access file. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
Amateur Radio on the International Space Station has announced the names of schools and organizations selected to host amateur radio contacts with International Space Station crew members during the second half of 2020. Ten proposals were accepted to move forward in the selection process and placed in a scheduling queue for an amateur radio contact between July and December 2020. Although Eris expects to schedule all 10 contacts during this period, changes to NASA crew availability may force postponement of some contact opportunities until the first half of 2021. The schools and host organizations are Estes Park Elementary School, Estes Park, Colorado, Greenback Elementary Middle School, Greenbank, West Virginia, Tecumseh Public School, Tecumseh, Oklahoma, Regional School Unit 21, Kennebunk, Maine. John F. Kennedy High School, Denver, Colorado. Oregon Charter School, Mill City, Oregon. Newcastle High School, Newcastle, Wyoming. Tarwater Elementary School, Chandler, Arizona. Copernic Observatory and Science Center, Vestal, New York. And the Salem South Lion District Library, South Lion, Michigan. And finally this week, what extremes would you go to to get your hands on an old radio? If that radio is the wireless transmitter that operator Jack Phillips used April 15, 1912, to summon help for the doomed RMS Titanic, those extremes likely include ocean depths. The United States company that has salvage rights to the wreckage is ready to make that trip, and soon. The company with sole rights to salvage artifacts from the RMS Titanic has gone to court to gain permission to carry out a surgical removal and retrieval of the Marconi radio equipment on the ship, a Washington Post article reports. The Titanic sank in 1912 on its maiden voyage after striking an iceberg in the North Atlantic. As the radio room filled with water, radio operator Jack Phillips transmitted, Come at once. We have struck a berg. It's a CQD, old man, and other frantic messages for help using the spark transmitter on board. CQD was ultimately replaced with SOS, which Philip also used as the universal distress call. The passenger liner RMS Carpathia responded and rescued 705 passengers. As might be expected, the deteriorating Marconi equipment is in poor shape after more than a century underwater. The undersea retrieval would mark the first time an artifact was collected from within the Titanic, which many believe should remain undisturbed as the final resting place of some 1,500 victims of the maritime disaster, including Phillips. The wreck sits on the ocean floor some two and a half miles beneath the surface, remaining undiscovered until 1985. A just-signed treaty between the U.K. and the U.S. grants both countries authority to allow or deny access to the wreck and to remove items found outside the vessel. This momentous agreement with the United States to preserve the wreck means it will be treated with the sensitivity and respect owed to the final resting place of more than 1,500 lives, British Transport and Maritime Minister Narsrat Ghani said in a statement. The request to enter the rapidly disintegrating wreck was filed in the U.S. District Court of Eastern Virginia by RMS Titanic Incorporated of Atlanta, which said that it hopes to restore the Titanic radio transmitter to operating condition if it is allowed to go forward.
The company plans to use a manned submarine to reach the wreck and then deploy a remotely controlled sub that would perforate the hull and retrieve the equipment. Many of the news and information items heard on this week in amateur radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Letter, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, amateur radio newsletters from around the world, sources on the internet, and the packet bulletin board systems of the United States and Canada. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.